What's up, guys, and welcome back to another brand new episode of the Listen to Me Speak podcast. We are on season three, episode 15. And before I really get started here, I want to give a shout out to my girl, Rachel, and everybody else who tuned into the last episode. I really appreciate all the love and support. I really, really do. I put a lot of time and effort into these episodes, especially into that Harry Styles review because I wanted to make sure I got it right. So shout out to all of my friends that are Harry Styles fans that made sure to check in. I appreciate the love. Life has been really crazy in the best of ways lately, and that's a major reason why there was no new episode last week, and I can't wait to share the great news with you guys. Don't worry, I'll be sharing it with you soon. Just bear with me in the meantime. Now, June is an incredible month. It's my birthday month, so of course, that was already one of the major reasons why I love June, but you know, it's Pride Month, Happy Pride Month, there's Black Music History Month, there are a lot of great things to celebrate in June, so it's just a great month for positivity, just in general, I think. So, without wasting any more time, let's get right into this episode. So, I want to start it off by getting into Station 19, because it ended, I think, a couple of weeks ago at this point. And I want to kind of do a a quick little recap of season five before I give some of my thoughts on the finale. Now, I find that a lot of the recent season finales outside of This Is Us, which is another, I'm getting into that series finale uh, very soon as well. But I feel like a lot of the recent season finales were kind of dull and boring and lackluster. I kind of expect that for a mid-season finale because it's, okay, you want to give the audience a little something to hang on to once they return for, like, the winter. But I feel like for an actual season finale, for a show you know is going to be renewed. Like, Station 19, we already knew that it was going to be renewed. Grey's Anatomy, we already know it's going to be renewed. So I feel like they can get away with those major cliffhangers. And usually Station 19 um, has really strong season finales I think over the past couple of years it's been a much stronger show than Grey's Anatomy but this season finale in particular was just really lackluster it felt everything felt rushed and I kind of gave up on Grey's Anatomy finally just because I found myself dreading like I felt like it became a chore to watch that show and I'm like I really don't have to sit here and force myself to watch a show I truly don't want to watch I think for me it's just I've been watching the show for so long that I was like you know I I put a lot of time and effort into watching the show so I might as well just stick with it until the wheels fall off but it's just gotten so bad and so uninteresting I just could not force myself to watch another second of the show but of course I went on social media during when the finale was ending airing to kind of see what people were thinking and a lot of people felt the same way I felt about the station 19 season finale that it was kind of boring and it kind of left you with nothing it didn't leave you hanging there was nothing to look forward to for the next season because that's the point of the cliffhanger you want to draw the audience back obviously for a for the new season and the Grey's Anatomy season finale did not do that at all apparently But circling back to Station 19 and my little recap of Season 5, so I kind of wanted to hit some of the main points and give some of my thoughts and opinions on them. So obviously, Maya and Karina have become the new it couple of Station 19. Every show kind of has it, depending on what the show is about. Every every show has kind of like the it couple, like the one couple that's kind of supposed to be the stable one, the one you root for. Now, honestly, I feel like that's Warren and Bailey. I feel like 
I would be very shocked if they actually got divorced. Like that you just know that they're that one couple that they are stable, they're secure, they know that they, you know, love each other, they have been through enough in their marriage to know kind of what makes it work and, and what it doesn't and they already kind of consider Warren to kind of be the father of the group. So for me, the stable it couple for that show is Warren and Bailey. But it's shaping up that they're kind of trying to make Maya and Karina that that couple because outside of Warren and Bailey, they're the ones that, you know, have made the relationship last longer. They're married, you know, now they're, you know, wanting to start a family and they, you know, they're trying for their first child. Now, I was never fully like, I think they're cute because, you know, obviously they've been together for seasons now. You get used to them. They're cute together. I always felt like Karina was too good for Maya especially because I still haven't gotten over the fact that Maya slept with Jack while they were supposed to be dating just because she felt too she felt the pressure of commitment so the one way she thought to fix and handle that was to go sleep with her ex-boyfriend which was also Andy's ex-fiance but you know that's another story for another episode so I never really cared for Maya as a character just period just because there's just something about her I don't like and when she got with Karina, because I watched Grey's Anatomy, I liked Karina enough. I thought she was a sweetheart. She's intelligent. She's great at her job. You know, she's very personable. So when they kind of decided to kind of introduce them together, I'm like, Karina's too good for Maya. And the moment Maya cheated on her with Jack, who I also have mixed feelings about, I kind of already, my, my opinions were set in stone. I'm like, I already thought Maya was too good for, I mean, Karina was too good for Maya. And now after she did that, I definitely know that. But Karina, you know, got over it. They made it work. They ended up getting married. And even their whole process of getting married and, you know, trying to commit to one another, it was like, there was a point in time where Karina did not want to get married because, you know, she saw her parents' marriage fall apart. She felt like, you know, marriage was just a piece of paper. It wasn't needed. I respected her stance. But it was like Maya kept trying to bully her into marrying her and to get her way. And it just was so not romantic. So even though the wedding was cute, I was just like, Maya's just so off-putting. But whatever, they're together, they're married, they want to have kids. My issue with this is not that they want to have kids, but who they chose as their sperm donor. And that's Jack. And a lot of people who are huge fans of this relationship had a problem with this. And I don't blame them. You chose, and and Karina, I think Karina was on the fence about it a little bit in the beginning, but eventually she, I think it was Karina. It was one of them that was, uh, that had a problem with it in the beginning and eventually they hopped on board and that's what it, I think, I really think it may have been Karina's idea, which is even more out of character. It's been a while. It's been a whole season, so I don't remember exactly. But one of them had the problem. I want to say that Maya was a little wary of choosing Jack as the sperm donor at first, which makes sense. And really, it should have been Karina that was more hesitant because this is a the guy that almost broke up your relationship in the beginning. This is the guy that dated your ex, and then she went and slept with him when things got too complicated and got too serious in your relationship. To choose him of all people is odd to me. And that's why I'm glad that Andy had pointed that out to Jack about how messy and complicated that situation is. And not only for the reasons I just said, but also because this is a guy who still hasn't healed from his own trauma stemming from his own parents giving him up and being abused throughout the foster care system and having an issue with abandonment and, you know, 
struggling all his life to find a true family. I think all of those reasons that were mentioned right now and even throughout the show were valid. So I don't agree with the writer's um, decision to make Jack the donor. I do believe that Maya has a brother. I know that he is a drug addict, but I want to say he got clean. If he did get clean, he would have been a great choice. But if he's still kind of a drug addict and homeless, obviously he's not a great choice. But I feel like them finding a random donor that they've, you know, vetted that looks like Maya would have been a better option than having Jack be the donor. It was just very, very odd. Even their way about going about telling him that they wanted him to be the donor about the actual process of, you know, in, in putting the sperm into her, like all of that was just a mess. It was messy. And that's why I'm like, thank God for Andy, because Andy is one of the only characters outside of Dean that really gets through the Jack because Jack makes a lot of reckless and dumb decisions. And so the progression of Andy and Jack's relationship has been a beautiful thing to watch, even all the way into the season finale. It's so crazy to me to now think back to season one and remember that they were engaged just because the people that they are now in the show are not compatible in that way at all. They've tried and they just work better as friends. But it's funny that the show starts off with them being engaged. I think if Andy ever decided that she just wanted to have kids on her own as a single mother and she needed a sperm donor, Jack being that person for her would have made more sense than him being that person for Maya and Karina. I know that there's a friendship between Maya and Jack, but I find it odd just because it's, okay, you dated this guy and you also cheated on your wife with this guy. So I don't think that their friendship should really go any deeper than just being coworkers, just my opinion. I think if, say they dated briefly, because it was more so they had a fling really, say they had the fling and she never cheated on Karina with the guy, a little more understandable, but still a little weird because you did have sex with this guy. So honestly, I can't see Maya and Karina lasting by the end of the show. I feel like they're the new Callie and Arizona. Callie and Arizona, for those of you who don't watch, were a um, queer couple on Grey's Anatomy, very toxic, very up and down. Maya is a lot like Arizona, and that could also be why I don't like Maya, because I couldn't stand Arizona. Callie and Karina have a lot in common. They were one of the fan favorite couples on the show. Shonda Rhimes really loved the couple to the point where once the actresses who played them both left the show because they left the show around different times, they kind of off screen put them back together in the same way they did for Jackson in April. And when I think about it too, Karina did date Arizona very briefly on Grey's Anatomy. So it's very clear she has the type. I, that just clicked. But I definitely see... Karina and Maya being the new Callie in Arizona, they have a lot of the same similarities in both the characters and also the relationship and kind of the drama they've had to face in their relationship. So I wouldn't be surprised if they end up getting divorced just like Callie in Arizona, depending on how long the show uh, airs for, they may try to put them back together, but I just, I don't see it working for them long-term. But speaking of Jack, in throughout the season, or even really throughout the series, like I mentioned before, we know a lot of his issues. A lot of his trauma stems from being abused in the foster care system, of finally getting a family for a brief moment in time and then losing them. So for Jack, he has suffered a lot of loss. And in this season, a lot of those, his issues um, with his family and the trauma of that come to a head. 
because he, in the process of becoming a sperm donor for Karina and Maya, he realizes that he actually wants to do more genetic testing. And so he does, and he finds out that he... and Oh, yeah, he does the genetic testing because he wants to make sure that no diseases run, no serious diseases run in his family before Karina and Maya are secure with their choice. And he does and finds out that he has a biological brother. And he decides that he actually wants to meet this brother. And when he meets him, and by the way, the casting for the brother was very, very good. They really do look alike. Not exactly alike, but enough that you believe they're brothers. They hold their mouth the same way. They kind of stand in similar ways. Like, that was casting well done, and the acting was great as well. And so once he meets this brother, and I meant to say spoiler alert earlier, because for those of you who aren't caught up with Station 19, I don't want to spoil anything for you, but I'm also going to try my best not to give every single thing away so that there's something for you to watch. So once Jack meets this brother, he finds out something very, very shocking that was kept from him his whole life. And this kind of upends his whole world, and you kind of see the impact of that play out once we get to the season finale. Now, prior to this storyline, I feel like with Jack, there has been no growth and no real excitement surrounding the character since maybe season two. Even this storyline, they're really just building on what we kind of already know. There's been nothing interesting surrounding his character. Like, you know, there was a lot of things going on with Andy this season, even Maya and Karina with this baby storyline and Dean's death and Ben fighting for custody of Dean's daughter Prue so all of these other characters there's a lot going on with them even Vic and her um, pregnancy and and I'll get into that as well because that's a topic I want to touch on all of these characters have something really interesting and it's built and you know even if it's not a completely new storyline it's building it's giving us more information on a storyline that they've kind of teased that we didn't have a whole lot to go off of Andy this season a lot of what's happening to her is just build up from her other issues that have been addressed in the season, if that makes sense. It's okay, you know, we know that Andy's mother's not dead like we all thought. She's actually alive and, you know, she just faked her own death to get away from Andy's father and, you know, by doing that she abandoned Andy and we find out that this has had an effect on her relationships and then after she's assaulted this season, we kind of see a lot of that old stuff come back up and we learn more. And we're interested because it is intriguing to see how all of these things connect. For Jack, I feel like part of the problem with him is that we start and stop with him a lot. We'll bring up some of his issues or or we'll bring up a storyline that he's involved with and it either goes nowhere or it falls flat and then we hear nothing for a little while, and then it kind of comes back up again. But it's like, well, they try. We we already we are, the writers already tried this before, and it kind of went nowhere. We know Jack has issues with commitment. Maya had issues with commitment, but we kind of saw her her growth, and we saw how she kind of dealt with them. Jack, it's like okay, we're pointing out the fact that he has commitment issues, but we've done nothing to really fix it. We've done nothing to solve it, and there's been little to no growth with the character. So I felt like prior to this, you know, brother storyline that they brought up, I'm like, you know, when they were teasing that a character was going to die, I thought it was going to be Jack, not Dean, because I felt like Jack was the only one with a pretty much non-existent storyline. And once I get into the finale a little bit, 
it makes a lot of sense. I think I'm not crazy because I think the writers have made, may have come to that realization themselves and that's why his character seems to be heading in a certain direction. Outside of Jack and into Andy, because Andy's storyline, I think, was the real centerpiece of the back half of the season. So a little trigger warning because some of these topics are going to be really heavy. We get to a point in the season where Andy is going through a divorce from Sullivan. You know, her and that new guy, I forgot his name, Beck, Beckett, they hook up and don't work out. And so her and Jack decide to agree to become celibate that you know having sex with you know random people or people that aren't good for them it, it never really did anything for them and so they felt like they would think clearly and less ra and and more rationally if they weren't having sex you know if they were putting themselves first and focusing on being single and trying to heal that maybe things would start working out better for them and and i felt like that was a great idea i obviously obviously knew that Andy was going to take it more seriously than Jack. Jack, for the most part, Jack was single this whole season. He, he, he didn't really have sex with anyone, so I can say that he stayed true to that pact. But the whole thinking rationally part, that was something he still struggled with this season because him agreeing to be the sperm donor for Karina and Maya, as Andy said, was not a rational thought. But either way, that's where Andy is at this point in the season. She's single, she's focusing on herself and her career and, and, all, and all of that. So Andy ends up being in, and I forgot the station number, but they end up transferring Andy at the beginning of the season. She's not in station 19 anymore. And I believe she is, I think it's Lieutenant for firefighter. She's the Lieutenant over at this other station. The chief ends up getting hurt at the same, the same call, the same call that ended up killing Dean injured, severely injured this chief. And so Andy had to kind of step up. She wasn't exactly chief, but she was kind of like the interim chief where she was kind of leading the charge until he got better. And so this station that she was at was extremely misogynistic. The way they treated women, they, the way they treated just new people, but especially women, the hazing, it was just really, it was a really toxic environment. And Andy stepped in to try to kind of fix and, and change the culture of that station. And so when the new, I forgot what her official title is, but I want to say she's like higher than a chief. Maybe she's like chief commander or whatever. So Andy tries to confide in this new chief because she's a woman and she thought she would try to appeal to her on that side. And so rather than the new chief saying, oh, you know, I'll take your ideas into consideration and we'll try to change the culture. Her idea was to just shut the station down, which is not what Andy wanted. So obviously the rest of the firefighters are eventually told that their station is being shut down. So they go out to a bar to celebrate their last day where it comes out that Andy played a role in them being shut down. They're all mad at her. They leave her alone with this guy that also so happened to be at the bar. He wasn't at that particular station. He just happened to be there that night. He was a firefighter himself. He knew some of the other firefighters. So he was there hanging out. Him and Andy are getting along. They're drinking, they're laughing. And so she likes him, she thinks he's cute, they're flirting with each other. And when he tries to get her to go home with him, she goes, you know, I really like you, you're cute, but I'm focusing on being celibate right now, I don't wanna have sex. So they leave the bar, they're still kind of laughing and joking around, but then he, still tr but then he starts up again and trying to get her to have sex. At this point, she's more forceful with telling him, no, I told you I'm, 
I want to be celibate right now. I don't want to have sex. That's when he begins to get aggressive and tries to force himself on her. And she punches him so hard, I believe, that she kills him. And so it starts this whole this whole chain of events, you know. She goes in for a rape kit. She, um, she gives her statement to the police, all of this. Of course, they end up suspending her because the guy, he, he, they didn't find out that he was dead right away, but eventually they find out that she did actually kill him. So it becomes more serious. And so she's suspended from her duties as a firefighter and she has to prepare for trial. Now, all of these things that happened to Andy force her to kind of go back and revisit things from her childhood, which is something that's been common for Auntie a lot over the past couple of seasons, ever since we found out that her mother was actually alive. And as a child, she starts remembering her father and her mother arguing over the mother's decision to have Andy take self-defense classes. And we find out it's because her mother had actually been assaulted by another firefighter herself but did nothing about it because of the times. And when you look at it, there's not much of a difference between the times then and now. Even though Andy had a right to defend herself, because if she hadn't, he was going to assault her. There was literally nobody around, so he could have gotten away with it. She had a right to defend herself, but because he was killed, now she has to be tried like a criminal, even though it was self-defense. Obviously, she wasn't trying to kill the guy. She was just trying to, you know, hurt him to get him to stop trying to assault and attack her. So when you kind of have Andy's mother tell what hap- tell Andy what happened to her, you kind of realize n- not much has changed. The only difference between Andy's mother and Andy is that Andy was actually able to overpower her attacker and, you know, she ended up killing him. That was the difference. I think Andy's mother said that for her it was just you know, she tried to fight him off, but eventually she just grew tired and, you know, he got his way. And so I think that that moment between Andy and her mother was the moment that they needed to finally heal because Andy had realized, you know, my mother's not perfect and my mother has been through so much. She's been fighting for her life. And when the issues between Andy's mother and her father started, it was just, uh, I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of being in another controlling, abusive situation. I just, I can't do it anymore. And even though she was wrong for abandoning her daughter, I think Andy was starting to realize now that she had been in a similar situation as her mother, exactly what her mother was going through and what she felt and the fact that her mother came back to comfort her and be with her because obviously we all need our moms, but as a woman, if you go through something like that, you really need your mom. You really need a woman that you find nurturing and warm and safe to comfort you. And so I think it was a big deal that her mother came back and provided that comfort for her and said, you know, you did what you had to do and kind of told her, because Andy knew, Andy knew she wasn't wrong. But to have her mother come back and comfort her and, and tell her, you did what I wish I would have done. You did what a lot of women wish they could have done. You did the right thing. I think that was really important for Andy's growth, not just as a character, but with her mother as well, because now she's on the road to healing, you know? And I think that this season for Andy was important. It really showed her growth as a character. In the beginning of the series, I didn't really care for Andy, but as the seasons went on, I started to, she started to appeal more to me. You could see that she was maturing. She was becoming a slightly better person. So I think this season was really the climax of that growth 
and now with the following seasons, we're kind of going to see her, see her heal and see like great things happen for her. I hope the last main uh, topic that I think I, that I think is worth discussing is obviously Victoria's or Vic's because they don't really call her Victoria Vic's storyline with, and I don't remember the guy she's dating now. It's going to, I'm not even going to bother trying to remember, but Vic was really frustrating to me this season because once I kind of accepted her new relationship, because those of you who watched the show kind of know that it was kind of like that relationship was like a gray area. Once I finally accepted it, she's dating this guy. He's a great guy overall. He's, he treats her respectfully. He loves her. He just seems like a, a nice guy. And so Vic, I feel like was resisting him so hard. She was starting to piss me off because it's, you finally found this great guy and he loves you and he respects you and he wants to be with you and you keep playing these games. So watching her kind of play with his emotions and kind of be difficult was frustrating, especially because she is one of my favorite characters on the show. And that really comes to a head, I think, once Dean dies. I knew she wasn't going to react well. Who would? That was her best friend. And between his death and then finding out that she's pregnant... I already knew that Vic was going to have a really hard time and she was going to be acting even worse than she already was. And that was the case. But I think, again, it shows just how good her boyfriend, how good of a guy the boyfriend is, is because he had his own strong thoughts about abortion. And for him, it didn't matter. It mattered how Vic felt and what she wanted to do. So even though the whole time she was resisting him and pushing him away... He was just taking it on the chin. He was eating it and he was he refused to leave her side once he knew that she was pregnant and that she wanted to have an abortion. And again, I think despite how frustrating Vic was for a majority of the season after she had the abortion and she kind of was starting to, I guess, forgive herself for a lot of things that maybe she just repressed or refused to acknowledge from her past. Once she was able to heal and kind of, you know, accept Dean's death, not get over it, but accept it, her relationship with the boyfriend got a lot better. Her as a character, she, again, a lot of these characters are evolving as they should. She began to evolve just a little bit. And so she ends up becoming a more likable character by the end of the season. But as a Vic fan, she was pissing me off for a majority of it. I obviously already touched on Ben and Bailey and, you know, there, them trying to get custody of Prue and then finally being able to get that custody, which was like a huge win, I think, for all of us at home that were just rooting for what Dean wanted, which was for Ben to take over in case something happens to him. And when you think back on that scary moment where you think Ben and Dean are going to die at sea because I think they got they jumped off the boat and they got stranded, Dean's death is foreshadowed. It's like he kind of... He ended up surviving that, which is one in a million, only to die later. And so in that moment, he says, you know, I would really like for you to be the take over as the father of my child if I can't be here. So to hear Dean say that firsthand and to have his parents still fight against Ben and Bailey being those parents for Prue, it was really frustrating. But at the end of the day, it all worked itself out. And I think that Ben and Bailey are incredible parents. It's what Dean wanted. And you know, Prue is surrounded by her second family, essentially. So I think I've covered all the main points of the season, and I kind of wanted to get into the season finale. So my problem with the season finale is that we had a great buildup of all of these things, and then by the time we get to the finale, 
it seems rushed along. So obviously from the middle of the season, they have been building and building on Andy's trial. And it's not looking good for her. Obviously, we knew she wasn't going to end up in jail. We knew that we hoped that something would eventually happen in her favor and she'd kind of get out of her situation. I was thinking that it wasn't going to be completely fixed just like that in the season finale. They kind of threw Andy a bone and said, hey, you know, here are some of these other women that have been affected by this guy and they're going to testify to the... uh, district attorney that you know it happened to them too and all of a sudden once that happens the case gets thrown out and Andy can go back to her job and life is simple again and my problem with that is that I would love for that to always be the case I would love for survivors of abuse and rape to have it that easy but it seemed a little unrealistic now I felt like we the season finale we deserve to kind of see a trial And they could have played out the dramatics and then had her get off after that. But to just say, oh yeah, um, this woman who originally didn't even want to testify is now all of a sudden going to testify for you. And now the trial just gets thrown out and that's it. It's disappointing because we've been building towards this for for like several episodes. And so for us to get to the season finale and it's just like, yeah, well, never mind. (laughs) He's a piece of shit like we knew he was, and that's just the end of it. It felt lackluster. It felt like we were building high. We were building tensions high just for us to have like an unsatisfying end to that storyline. Like I said, I'm happy that Andy got off. I'm happy that she's going to be able to return to her job. I do hope that once the season starts, we really have Andy in therapy focusing on that post-traumatic stress because... Being a firefighter is a high-intensity job, and when you have unresolved trauma that you're not working through, it's just not a good mix. We've seen it on other shows. We know it from real life. So I do hope that next season we, we they're still having Andy heal from that because the way they ended that storyline was just so rushed to me, as well as the way they handled Jack. And I won't say exactly what happens, but it looks like he essentially walks away from being a firefighter. And I don't know, I didn't read anything about the actor leaving the show, but I feel like it's a great opportunity for them to start setting that up because the character has pretty much been going nowhere. Those were really the only main points of the season finale, and both of those main points were kind of, okay, not all that interesting, or they could have been done in more interesting ways. The other subplots of the season finale aren't even worth really getting into because they were small. And I think this season overall was a good season. I feel like they put maybe too much into the season that it it didn't leave a whole lot for them to do for the season finale. It's kind of like they ran out of steam by the time we got to the final episode. But those are pretty much my thoughts on season five of Station 19. Please let me know what you guys thought of the season yourselves, whether you agreed with some of my takes and opinions on these characters and storylines or not. My hopes for season six, like I said, is just them finally just either give Jack a better storyline or kind of wrap his character up and kind of send him on his way. I don't think they need to kill him off. Um, But I wouldn't be surprised if he realizes that being a firefighter is not for him anymore. I want to see Andy healing more. I don't want her to just jump right back into being a firefighter. Like, I feel like they're trying to make her do. I think she really should take some time to heal, go to therapy, work on her relationship with her mother, you know, work on herself. 
I think in season six, too, overall, they should just focus on characters and storylines that matter, that are interesting, and kind of stop giving some of the little bullshit, you know, storylines that they have been giving with certain characters. Like, Sullivan is no longer interesting to me now that him and Andy are getting divorced. Travis and his relationship with Emmett was just dragged on for too long. You know, Travis is a likable character overall. He had some interesting storylines earlier in the series. Let's kind of get back to that, because I feel like some of the characters have gotten a little lost and a lot of the other things that have been going on throughout the past couple of seasons. So those are pretty much my hopes for season six of Station 19. So moving on from Station 19 and into This Is Us, the final season. Now, I accepted that This Is Us was ending, and I was okay with it because, first of all, This Is Us is one of the greatest written shows ever. The way the writers tie every little piece into one another and don't leave hanging storylines or, you know, plot a whole lot of plot holes. Like, this show was so... You know that the writers, when they created the show, knew where it was going to start and they knew it, how it was going to end. So when they announced that it was going to end with season six, I said, that's perfect because if the show drags out too long, it's going to ruin some of the magic that it has now. So I do feel like more writers, because that's the first thing you're taught when you are writing whether it's a book, a show, whatever. You want to know how it starts and you want to know how it ends. So you can always tell when the writers of a TV show know how the show is going to end. And I think, you know, not to get too sidetracked, now that Glee is back on streaming services on Disney Plus and Hulu, that was one of the things that I think a lot of Glee fans, it kind of sucked because you knew how the show was supposed to end if Corey was still alive. And when Corey unexpectedly passed away, the writers obviously had to change everything because they knew how the show was supposed to end. And now that you don't have the main guy here, that changes things. And so you could kind of tell that, all right, we lost Corey. Now we don't know where the show is heading. So we're just writing as we go. A show starts to jump the shark and it starts to fail when writers just start writing as they go. And what I mean by that is just they have no end in mind. They're just going to keep writing in hopes that something, an idea will spark and they'll include it that way. This Is Us never had that feeling. That's why it's so beloved and it's, it's held so highly. It's spoken of so highly because the writing is so good. And I think the writers were able to touch on real life. This Is Us felt like you, they felt like real people. They were handling real life things. And I know other shows do that too, but it was the way that Dan Fogelman and the other writers of the show really were able to capture grief and loss and heartbreak and love and excitement and, and all of these different emotions so well. And I know that the show was loosely based off of Dan's actual mother. And maybe that's part of the reason it works so well. But This Is Us, if you didn't walk away crying or shedding a tear at least once during an episode you're you have to get your feel you have to get that checked because i i'm afraid you don't you don't have any real feelings because that show just really grabbed you by the heart and this last season you know with everything that a lot of us have been through me personally dealing with my own um losses this season was really brutal emotionally because throughout this final season, you see their mother, Rebecca, get sicker and sicker. She has Alzheimer's and she's slowly dying. And you see these, you know, her 
three children who have already been through a lot. They're not kids anymore. They lost their father young. They were only 18 when he died. They have gone through their own losses. You know, Randall alone, he's lost now every parent. And so you see them struggle to accept the fact that their mother, who was their anchor, you know, through all of their losses, through their heartbreak, through really bad times, to lose that anchor, it's got to be hard. And so this season was so taxing emotionally, but it was also so beautiful how it all came together. Things that were happening in season six were a callback to what happened in season one, and you realized, oh, well, at you know, when we were watching this season, we thought it was just a random fact that they were just telling the audience, but then we get to season six and it all ties together and it makes sense. What was once something so random ended up being something so big and beautiful by the end. And one of those is in Rebecca's farewell episode, which is one of the best episodes of this season, hands down. In that episode, we see a back and forth between Rebecca, which what we call a train because her father and her used to bond over trains. And so they had her transition from life to heaven by having her walk down each car on the train. And in each car, there's a different person that had an impact on her in her life, from her children to her doctor that helped her give birth to her kids to Randall's biological father. Like each car had a different person that impacted her in her life. And so it, in real time, we're also seeing each character that she's encountering speaking to her and saying their final words to her in real life as she's actually sitting in the bed. But in her mind, she's on the train. She's ready to transition into heaven. It was a beautiful back and forth moment. And as this is going on, you're also being told the story of a character we've never met before who seems unimportant. And we end up finding out that the same night that Jack dies is the same night that this black family gets into a horrible car accident and one of the sons is on life or death and so jack originally was supposed to be fine he inhaled a lot of smoke but he was going to be okay and so they're in the waiting room the father of the boy who's in critical condition is you know sitting there jack comes in and they're both you know talking about how bad of a night they were having and Jack gives him advice about how when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade, something like that. Jack goes back to his um, hospital bed and he unexpectedly dies. The doctor who had just checked in on him went to go save the little boy's life who was critically, who was in critical condition and ends up saving his life. Once the doctor comes out of surgery, he's told that Jack passed and you can see this immense amount of guilt come over him because he's like, I just checked in on him. He was fine. But if I hadn't been saving that little boy's life, I would have been here to save Jack's. And in the end, you find out that that little boy grows up to become the man who creates the drugs to delay Alzheimer's, which are the drugs that Rebecca ends up taking to delay her Alzheimer's and to give her a longer life. So all of these things really beautifully tie in together in the end. And so you end up, by the time you finish the episode, you go, you know what? I didn't really care about this character. I didn't understand why we were seeing him until the end. We find out that, yes, Jack died because the doctor wasn't around. He was saving the boy's life. And even though Jack died, he ended up saving someone who was going to make history and medicine and save Rebecca's life. He never met Rebecca. The father, Jack only spoke to the father very briefly, but it was in that moment where it was like, it felt like, okay, Jack's life was given up so that we could save this other life and he can go on and save 
Rebecca's life. And so it was this beautiful moment. And that's really what embodies what This Is Us is. It's these heartbreaking yet beautiful moments that all tie together to make one important lasting message. And I think this season, I, I can argue, arguably say that this season is one of the best seasons of the show. And it's crazy because it is the final season. And, you know, back to Rebecca's farewell episode, I think they, they captured that really well. And it was a comfort, I think, for a lot of us who have been through loss to say, you know what, we don't know what happens when we die. But we can only hope it's as beautiful as this, that they get to relive some of the best moments of their life. And by the time they get to the end of the train, they get to be with the person that they love, which is what happens to Rebecca. She ends up meeting Jack at the caboose and they end up together. And, you know, you only hope that the people you love when they pass, that they are happy and they're with maybe other people that they've lost themselves. And there's this one quote I think that's in the show that says, you know, who, you know, death is always hardest on the living, not for the person who is gone. So I think, you know, this is us really punched us in the gut one final time with that episode. But I think that it was beautifully well done. This whole season was beautifully well done. And like I said, I had made peace with the fact that it was ending. But by the time I got to the farewell episode, I was like, damn, I'm going to miss the show. Maybe we could have did one more season because it just was incredible. Susan, um, I want to say her last name is pronounced Kellucci. I, I, I hope I didn't jack that up, but she plays Beth. One of my favorite characters on the show, she's an incredible actress, but really in season six, she really, really shined. She was the comedic relief a lot of the time. And she was just really real. It was, you know, I've, this, the Pearsons, they are, there was drama after drama with them. They were a dramatic ass family. And so, I do like the part she played, especially in season six, because it showed just how differently people grieve. The way that Beth handled all of their, all of the drama that came with that family and all of the loss was, you know, I've just been with this man so long, I've been with this family so long, that sometimes you just have to joke your way through your pain. And so she provided a lot of the comic relief for the characters and also for the audience. And I think that's what made her farewell to Rebecca so important and so it sticks with you and you don't expect you didn't expect hers to have that much of an impact over Rebecca's own children but it really did have that impact where she tells Rebecca you know she didn't have the best relationship with her own mother and she followed Rebecca's lead she was doing her best Rebecca impression as a mother because she saw the way that Rebecca was with her own kids and wanted to be that way for her own child or her own children because her mother wasn't that for her. Her mother didn't always give her what she needed. And Beth wasn't a perfect mother all the time, but she tried. And I, I just felt like that was a beautiful moment for the two of them. And I saw that a lot of people had the same impact on them. So Beth was truly a standout this season. And I can't say I'm not unhappy with how any of the characters ended up, who they ended up with, the, career, the, the direction that their characters' careers went in. I think it was believable that Randall went off to run for president. It was definitely believable that Kate ended up staying in the education system and, and, and trying to create better schools and a better education for her son and for people that are blind like her son. I think that was believable. Kevin, Kevin retiring from acting, 100% believable and going into charity work. It just fit for him because acting was never something he wanted to do forever. So I thought that that was a believable end for his character and just a job well done. I feel like I've, I've talked about the season a lot on this podcast, 
But once we started getting towards the end, I just decided to consolidate all of my thoughts for the series finale. And it was just really, really well done. I don't think that This Is Us ever needs a spinoff, but because that conversation was coming up amongst fans, I think if they were to ever do a spinoff centered on anybody, it would really be Randall's family that I would be interested in. We know a lot more about his children and Beth and Randall's relationship. To me, out of the three of them, it's the most interesting story. So I would love to watch the adult versions of Randall's kids kind of start their own families and and make it through life and to still kind of know what's going on with Beth and Randall. I feel like that would be a spinoff I would very much watch. I know some people said that they would love to see a, a prequel of This Is Us with just Randall and the college versions of Randall and Beth. I don't know that that could last a super long time because we know a lot of their college love story, but I would definitely like to see Deja and um, I'm blinking on the other children's names, but I would love to see a spinoff centered on them. I think that would be really interesting. But that wraps up my thoughts on the final season of This Is Us. So moving on into some TV related news, Paramount Plus announced that a Jersey Shore spinoff will be led by Angelina from the original cast. Now, I thought this was hilarious because the only reason I knew that this spinoff was a thing was because the cast members from the original Jersey Shore cast, at least most of them anyway, completely denounced the spinoff. Completely. And honestly, I didn't think there was a real need for this spinoff because technically Jersey Shore Family Vacation is the Jersey Shore spinoff. And I don't know if Jersey Shore works without the original cast. They've tried to do other versions of the show like Florida Bama Shore. And I don't even think that comes on anymore. It lasted for maybe two or three seasons. What made Jersey Shore work was because of the cast. And doing a spinoff on Paramount Plus, I don't see that really working. But because Angelina, even though she's kind of like an original cast member, Seeing her be the lead of this new show is hilarious to me because she was always kind of on the outside in the main cast. She always had drama and issues with a lot of the main cast members. Even on the spinoff Family Jersey Family Shore Vacation, she was still having issues with some of them. I think her and Jay Wow were still going at it. And her and Vinny never really cared for each other. So the fact that all of the other cast members ripped this spinoff and then Angelina decided that she was going to be the lead for the show, it's just very fitting. I don't have Paramount Plus, but even if I did, I don't think I would be watching it. I didn't even keep up with the Jersey Shore Family Vacation spinoff. I think I watched a full season just for nostalgia purposes. But after that, I felt like there was no real need for the show. They're all grown adults. Most of them have children. I think all of them do, but Vinny. So it's like, it's not as appealing anymore. I mean, obviously the drama is not as crazy as it was on the original version of the show, but I just feel like at a certain point you outgrow that shit. So I feel like Jersey Shore worked for its time. There's no need for a spinoff. And considering it's going straight to a streaming service, that to me is the new version of going straight to DVD. It doesn't always pan well. So moving on from Jersey Shore, it was also announced that a Black Lady sketch show is coming back for a fourth season. Now, I really enjoyed the first two seasons, especially season one, because that's when Quinta Brunson was still on the show. And like I said, I knew about her, you know, on social media. I thought she was hilarious. On a Black Lady sketch show, I thought she was 
incredible. So when it was announced that she wasn't coming back to the sec for a second season, I was kind of disappointed because she was part of the reason why I enjoyed it so much. But when I found out that she was creating her own show, I said, you know, I'll keep up with her that way. I'll watch her new show and I'll still keep up with the Black Lady Sketch Show because Robin Didi, I think that's how you, Robin Didi, I think that's how you pronounce her name. I still thought she was hilarious. So the second season was cool, but this past current season, I didn't really laugh a whole lot. The jokes to me fell flat, just wasn't funny. And I'm hoping that, because I'll, I'll check out this new season, I'm hoping that with the fourth season, the jokes will be a lot better. But if it's as bland as this past season was, I'll probably give up the show after a fourth season. But congrats to them though, because it's a a black woman created the show. She's the main writer. It's under her production company. It's a all black female cast. So of course I want to support that, but I just hope that the jokes are a lot better for next season. Moving on from TV and on to some music news, Giveon announced that his new album, Give or Take, drops June 24th. And I kind of forgot about Giveon for a little bit. I feel like, and I feel like I'm going to be saying this a lot this year, a lot of artists recently have had very muted album rollouts or just really non-existent rollouts and I remember Giveon last year had teased that he was working on his debut album he had put out I think last year his song for tonight and then it was kind of silent and then he dropped another single lie again which was okay for tonight was a better single and then again I'm thinking you know he's probably just giving us singles warming up for you know maybe the real single and then all of a sudden he announces his album which didn't really come out of left field. We knew he was working on one, but kind of also still kind of felt like it came out of left field because there's been no real buildup for his album. I feel like a lot of these artists lately are dropping lackluster singles. They go away for a little bit. They come back out of nowhere and announce that their album is coming in a couple of weeks. I'm still excited for this album because again, I'm a fan of Giving On. I like all of his, all of the music he's put out so far I've liked. So I do hope though, because this is my one concern about his album, I do hope that they're, he's not just recycling what we heard on his EPs. I think his EPs were great. Obviously they carried him to where he is right now, but I don't want to hear a bunch of the same stuff that we got already on this album. I don't want him to play it safe. Obviously he should still do what works for him and, and does what makes him give on, but I don't want to feel like, okay, I heard this a better version of this song on this EP. I heard a better version of that song on this EP. So I just hope that his album, on this album, because it's his debut, that he steps a little bit out of his comfort zone and, and tries to switch things up a little bit. But either way, I really am looking forward to his debut. Drake was also apparently shooting a music video in Toronto with J. Cole as a guest. Now, there's no real accurate source to confirm this, but it would make a lot of sense. Drake obviously lives in Toronto most of the time, and now J. Cole is out there playing basketball. So, and obviously they've been spotted together at the games. Drake has been wearing his jersey. He's been promoting J. Cole on the team. I think he's the reason J. Cole probably got on the team. So the rumor makes sense. It does make sense that you know, if Drake is shooting a music video, he's in Toronto doing it, and that J. Cole stopped by to be a guest in the music video because he's probably living out there for the time being. It makes a lot of sense. I will take it with a grain of salt because not a whole lot of major news stories have picked up on the story either. It's kind of just word of mouth. It would mean that Drake is working on music, 
He did also sign that deal that I talked about earlier in the year. It was like a, a deal for $500 million. So obviously you don't just sit on a deal like that and not put anything out. Obviously you sign a deal like that, your intention is to make music. So we'll see where that goes. I doubt J. Cole is featured on the record. I feel like we'll probably never really get a J. Cole and Drake collaboration again anymore. I think the time has passed for that. Unfortunately, I would love to still get one, but it seems like they have those opportunities to make music together and they don't for whatever reason. So I do believe he's just a guest and that he's actually not featured on the record, though that would be that would be great. I don't expect Drake to really... I, I know I toy back and forth. I don't expect him to really drop anything this year, maybe a single, if nothing else, a single for the summer. I don't expect a body of work for him. I thought that from him, I thought maybe he would because of the reception to Certified Lover Boy, but he's not moving like someone who is in the studio and is making music. You can kind of tell at this point with Drake when he's in album mode or project mode, and he does not seem like he is. He seems like he's enjoying life. He's going to basketball games. He's hanging out with his son, you know, getting his hair braided. So, and that's well and good for him. I think for someone who constantly drops music, he should take some time off and live some life and then give us something else later. So I'm fine with that, honestly. Moving on from Drake, Demi Lovato recently announced that their new album, which is titled Holy Fuck, which I get such a kick out of that title and also the way they spelled fuck, which is F-V-C-K. Obviously, you, most artists don't put curse words in their album titles because you can't, labels don't really want to push and promote and, and other places don't really want to push and promote an album that has such an explicit word in it. So I thought that was clever. So this album drops August 19th, and it will be a return to their earlier pop rock slash pop punk sound, which I think is the smartest decision that Demi has made regarding the actual music they're making in a long time. Obviously, I enjoyed Dancing with the Devil, the artist starting over. I thought it was a solid pop album, but I think the last couple of albums haven't really been a full effort on their part. It doesn't really sound... The music didn't sound passionate. It just sounded like music for the sake of making it. Obviously, Demi was going through a lot at the time when she made Dancing with the Devil. So there's a real message there. There are real emotions there. I'm not discrediting that. But the actual music itself just felt like I'm just making the music, but I'm not fully passionate about the kind of music I'm making. They're good songs. Some of them are even great songs even, but I feel like with Holy Fuck, that's a real effort to be paying attention to what critics are saying, to what your fans are saying, to seeing what the music landscape sounds like. Obviously, anybody paying attention knows that pop punk and pop rock has been making a comeback. Billy, from Billy to Olivia Rodrigo to Willow to even freaking Machine Gun Kelly, who came in as a rapper. They have transitioned into making this music because it fits for them. And because there's a market for it now, you know, I think Machine Gun Kelly should never come back to rap. Not only because he sucks as a rapper, but because he was making no money in rap. He's really making the money and the impact in the pop punk scene. So that's where he should stay. And because Demi came in with that sound, it does make sense for them to go back to doing it. Especially because, like I said, people want to hear that now. It faded for a while, but now it's back. So a lot of artists sometimes, they... I call it a missed opportunity when something they came in on doing comes back and they don't capitalize on that because Demi's not an outsider in this genre. So it's not, it doesn't feel like, 
oh, they're just capitalizing. Obviously, yes, but it doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel like, oh, this is what's hot right now. I'm just going to hop on the trend. It's not just a trend for Demi. Those are their roots. Because Demi has always been compared to Haley from Paramore. I hear it a lot. So I feel like I'm really excited for this upcoming album because it's like, finally, an artist is paying attention to what's going on, paying attention to feedback, and is making the effort to kind of rebrand themselves and n maybe not find a new sound, but to make the effort to do something different. And, and I can throw Miley Cyrus in this as well because Miley has always kind of done different things in each era, but I feel like pop punk is with, on Plastic Hearts that really worked for her. So she's gonna continue doing that and as she should. And I think the Jonas Brothers, they're in a space where I think part of the reason they haven't put out an album outside of you know them having kids is that they don't know which direction they want to go in. And the Jonas Brothers came in doing pop rock. I don't know if necessarily pop punk is for them, but definitely making pop music that blends in those rock and blues sounds could work for them. So I do hope that that's something they consider doing as well. But I'm looking forward to Holy Fuck. So Chris Brown and Logic reveal their track lists. And finally, Chris Brown is giving us a concise album track list. It's only 23 songs. It's still a long album, but not as long as 30 or 40 songs. 23 songs used to actually be the norm at one point because it was kind of, it would border on a deluxe version of the album. And so I'm happy that he stuck to a shorter track list because people are like, oh, he said it was going to be short, but you know, we don't know for sure. I'm glad that it is going to definitely be a shorter album it's an album that i can sit with a lot better logic on the other hand has 30 songs now a lot of the songs are skits but it's still going to be a very very long album especially because the game is also dropping a very long album the same day so it's going to be a lot to absorb the episode is probably for that week is going to come out a lot later than intended because i have to really sit through two 30 track albums so that's a lot that's like what bordering on three hours, four hours of music. I'm definitely not listening to them back to back. I'll listen to one the night it comes out or the day it comes out because I can't see myself staying up till midnight to hear a, a 30 song album. And then I'll probably listen to the other one on a Saturday. But at least for Chris Brown, it's a normal 23 track album. I don't know how I feel about this upcoming album with Chris. You know, I, I really enjoyed Warm Embrace. I didn't really enjoy Iffy. I don't know which direction this album is going in. It doesn't sound like it really has a direction. I'm afraid it's going to be all over the place, but I'm trying to go into it with an open mind. And for Logic, it could go either way. He's been very inconsistent over the past couple of years. So I hope Final Days is a good album. So far, a couple of the songs are good. Some of them are just not memorable and the other ones I don't care for. So I think I'll probably end up liking maybe a, a playlist worth of songs and I'll probably playlist that album anyway after I, I'm finished listening to it. Who knows? All of these track lists being revealed does make it that much more obvious that the game hasn't really given us much. He hasn't really given us a real album rollout. He hasn't given us a track list. He hasn't even put out a second single. Easy was dropped at the beginning of the year around what February or March. He's put no single out since then and he's been trying to rely on what he always does which is clout and controversy. It's not really working for him this time around. The whole Eminem thing he keeps trying to do got old very quickly. We know he's not putting out that Eminem disc record. He keeps teasing the Black Slim Shady. So at this point, he even joined fucking TikTok. 
So at this point, the game just needs to drop another single and stop with the bullshit. Drop the single. We already got the album cover. Give us the track list and just stop with the bullshit antics. That, that's really all I can say. So moving on from music-related news into my first album review of the episode, I'm starting off with Hello Poison by Aaron Ray. Now, this album reads like a love letter to a toxic lover that he has in his life. He's not exactly condemning his lover of this, but just kind of pointing it out. He's aware of it, but also having fun. Each song is a different phase happening in the relationship. We start off with the first couple of songs being a little hesitant, to get involved with this person, but you know, also giving into their lust. And then as the album goes on, you get to, cause it's not really a romantic album. It's like, this is a summer fling type of thing. So you get into the actual fling and the good feelings that come with that. And then you get to the point where you realize the fling is kind of coming to an end. It's not working anymore. And by the time you get to the album, the fling is completely over. The relationship has ended. You're single again, all of that. So it really is a stage. Each song is a different stage of this relationship. Now, Aaron Ray, who, by the way, has a lot of producing credits on this album, props to him. I shouldn't be overly shocked because I knew there was one year, I want to say 2020 or maybe 2019, where he was, you know, showcasing his progress as a producer. He was, you know, in the studio playing around with like the drum kits and things like that. So I'm not overly surprised that he does have almost a uh, producer credit on each song, but shout out to him. But Aaron Ray and the other producers on this album are very intentional about the world they're, they're building on here. It's full of traditional R&B goodness with live instrumentation, sleek horns, vibe drums, and overall good energy. And Hello Poison proves that Aaron Ray is on his way to becoming one of the new heavy hitters in R&B music alongside Lucky Day, Ari Lennox, and her, and a couple of others. Rather than playing it safe, which is something he couldn't afford to do in the R&B landscape we're in right now with plenty of really solid R&B albums that have come out since 2020, he evolves and builds on from 2018's Platinum Fire. Aaron is one of the few R&B singers today that naturally sounds like he could have fit in with the early 90s. You can hear the influences of Usher and Brandy and even certain uh, boy bands from back then like 112 and Jodeci. You can hear those influences in the way he stacks his vocal runs and his vocals period and the way he phrases certain things, if that makes sense. He sounds even better vocally on Hello Poison. Like He was always a dope singer, but you can definitely hear that natural progression by the time you get to this album. Though the 90s is something that most artists and people in general are obsessed with, it comes to Aaron without force, which is why it works for him and the music also doesn't sound dated because you hear it in his vocals, but the production he's singing on is more modern. Storm is a particular standout for its jazz-influenced production and mellowed-out piano. Backed by Terrace Martin's incredible musicianship, because that sax solo towards the end is absolutely heavenly. I love that more R&B artists are starting to, to bring that back where they're having real saxophonists come in and play it live, or they're working with producers like DeMille that are actual musicians that, are, that actually know how to build realistic sounding instruments. I, it really has elevated R&B, the R&B music today even higher, so I'm happy to hear that, of course. Uh, the song is also backed by Brandy's lush background vocals. She's also a co-writer on this, and I wouldn't be surprised if the song was originally for her album instead because it does sound like um, 
It sounded like the world she created on B7, so I wouldn't be surprised. But between Terrace Martin's um, sax solo and also Bernie's background vocals, all of it comes together to form an incredible track, and it is a standout on the album for sure. But it's one of those songs where you listen to in the flow with the album, it makes sense. Outside of the album, I wouldn't just randomly play it. Hello Poison fits in with the band-backed neo-soul subsector of R&B that is popular right now, while also building his own world and particular sound around it. The top tracks from the album are Nothing's Forever, Bad Idea, Lovely, Freak, and Gold, with honorable mentions for Storm, The Mood, and This Is Nice. So I'm going to start off with Nothing's Forever, which features Ty Dolla Sign and Rose Gold. And by the way, Ty Dolla Sign and Aaron Ray are incredible collaborators every time. What caught my attention with this song was the production. It's just so, so, so good. You can hear every instrument in the production. The harp, or what sounds like one, really drives the melody along with Aaron and Ty's vocals. It kind of sounds like a, a gospel in a way. Aaron and Ty sound as smooth as butter too. Those falsettos are heavenly, and if you listen to the song, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The song is the perfect way to end the album where he talks about a relationship and the good feelings that come with them don't always last forever. My favorite lines are, baby you let me down so sweet. The next song on my list is Bad Idea, which features Blast. This track was an instant favorite of mine by the time I got to the first chorus. It was one of those, you know, like 30, 40 seconds in that this is going to be one of your favorites from the album. And that was definitely the case. It's one of the rare moments where Hitmaker doesn't lean on a sample to carry the production, and that's probably because other producers worked on that track too, let's be real, that's definitely the reason. It still has Hitmaker's usual bad boy and puffy influence production, but it also leans into the newer R&B sound with a lot of bounce and the sing-rap cadence that's so popular, especially with Blast. Aaron rides this beat effortlessly here, and I fuck with his cadence. Blast is a great addition to this track as well. His tone just fits the beat and his verse is dope. That's one thing that sticks out to me about Blast is his tone. The way he elevates most tracks that he's on. I've heard him featured on a lot of songs lately and it's so unique as well that it always stands out to you. It doesn't matter how many people are featured on the track, Blast is always guaranteed to stick out. Bad Idea is a great song for the summer and I definitely already have it on repeat. The next song on the list is Lovely, which is a lively, groovy standout on the album. It's led by a funky electric guitar, and Aaron's vocals just ride on top of that. It's just such a good vibe, and it's reminiscent of the sound on Platinum Fire, and I feel like that's another good thing this album does. There are callbacks to the debut album, but there's no... It doesn't feel like he's trying to force himself to repeat that sound because it worked for him. A lot of people who love more of like the underground R&B album will highly regard Platinum Fire. And so I think it was brave for him to recognize that and also be like, you know what, I'm still going to do something different. I'm going to put out an album that fits in with the landscape that we're in, but also my own version of that. And I don't have to heavily rely on Platinum Fire. But it is nice to kind of hear some callbacks to that. And Lovely is definitely a callback to Platinum Fire for sure. My favorite lines from Lovely are, quote, if she's a princess, make her a queen. Up next is Freak. Now, the Michael Jackson influence jumped out heavily on this track. The guitar, the bass line, and the drums are all reminiscent of MJ's Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, as well as Aaron's falsettos in the hook and his ad-libs. There's just a certain magic in the way that MJ sang, and Freak is Aaron's way of trying to recapture that magic. 
Now, it doesn't quite live up to that, but it works for him on in his own way, and it still makes for a great song. This song is similar to Belbiv DeVoe's Poison, the theme at least, which is a warning that a lover is dangerous but still worth the risk. My favorite lines from Freak are, quote, gotta be careful with you, is that the devil in you? The last song on my list is Gold. Now, by now you know I live for a good guitar-led track, and that's part of what makes Gold so good. It's a mid-tempo song that allows Aaron to show off those sweet, sweet vocals, which is why it's a standout on the album for me. It also is another track, probably the one of only two tracks, the other one was Lovely, that reminds me of the sound that he created on Platinum Fire because the production style was kind of similar. To wrap up my thoughts, Hello Poison might just end up being one of the best R&B albums of the year, which means everyone on the scene dropping after this, especially after Candy Drip, might want to step it up. Now, my last album review of the episode is 12 Carat Toothache by Post Malone. This is an album without any real direction, theme, or growth. 12 Carat Toothache is a watered-down version of Hollywood's Bleeding. Now, while I didn't care for that album as a whole, either, I could at least give Post credit for his growth. Hollywood's Bleeding was a stark 180 from Beer Bongs and Bentley, and even Stoney, especially Stoney. Post sounds too settled and comfortable on this album. He found what worked for him, which isn't a bad thing. But what is a bad thing is that he seems too comfortable in allowing the same formula to work for him now because it did before. I will say that this album is cohesive. The songs tend to bleed into one another. And while I love cohesion, the production borders on repetitive, and the fact that Post works with the same one or two producers on each album could be the problem. He doesn't branch out sonically on this album at all. The only interesting production moments on this album are on Lemon Tree, Reputation, and Euthanasia. And all of these songs kind of have a haunting and dark production, which was common on Hollywood's Bleeding as well. The tone was a lot darker compared to Beer Bongs and Bentleys and even Stoney. Another flaw is that the songs aren't memorable and barely have any replay value, which is something I can say about a concerning amount of albums lately. Even his two singles, One Right Now, which featured The Weeknd, and Cooped Up, which features Roddy Rich, came and went for me. The songs themselves on the album aren't horrible, just forgettable, and it's, it's nothing new, it's just safe. There are moments where Post attempts to give some depth on the album on songs like Love, Hate, Letter to Alcohol, where he talks about both his struggles with alcohol and also how it serves as a vice, but it's still just surface-level emotion. There's another moment of vulnerability on the intro track, Reputation, where he talks about his insecurities, failures, and shortcomings. It's a beautiful moment for Post vocally and shows off his nice tone, which I always found to be unique and badly replicated by other artists coming up. Speaking of artists replicating that sound and tone, there is a song that Post Malone has on the album called Wasting Angels, which features Kid Leroy. And as I'm listening to the, to the song, and I probably had this thought in the back of my mind even before this, but as I'm listening to it, I'm like, the Kid Leroy is essentially Post Malone's son. He pretty much has the same exact tone as Post Malone. And I feel like he kind of, in a short period of time, is kind of challenging Post Malone for that lane, which is hilarious to me because it's, it's very obvious that he's just a, you know, copy of Post Malone and the sound he came in on. I mean, even the way that Post Malone has been, 
managed to have those radio hits from the record he has with Justin Bieber. And there was another song recently. And even some of the songs he's featured on on other people's songs end up being the hits for that particular person's album. And, you know, you hear them on the radio, you see them chart on Billboard. And I had that realization that it seems like maybe the Kid Leroy is challenging to replace Post Malone because the reception to this album has not been good overall. A lot of people are saying very, very similar things that I'm saying. But it's funny to me because it's I like, how are you going to let a guy who is pretty much jacking my sound overtake me? It's just crazy. You would think you would want someone who's a little bit different than Post Malone, not someone who's a carbon copy of him. Wasting Angels isn't horrible, but I think I just see it for what it is. You have a guy who sounds just like Post Malone on the record. This guy is a radio darling. He's all over Billboard. You know, he's got Justin Bieber and Scooter Braun in his corner. Like, he has all of the makings of becoming a superstar. You want a hit single, you grab the kid, you put him on. And so that's what Wasting Angels pretty much is. So the top tracks from 12 Carat Toothache are Lemon Tree, I Like You, Insane, and When I'm Alone. So I'm going to start off with Lemon Tree, which is probably my favorite song on the album, a song I kind of slept on on first listen, but I realized how much how good it was on second listen. So Lemon Tree is backed by a light acoustic guitar and some mellowed out synths and percussion. On this track, Post sings about life handing him lemons, something he perceives as sour, and instead of making lemonade, he'd rather burn it down because he feels like he deserves better because other people have something sweeter than he does. It's a beautifully written track, and Post sounds great on this too. It's very haunting, like I mentioned before. Lemon Tree is one of the real standouts from the album. My favorite lines are, quote, Could you be a little less sour? We're rotten by the hour, and my heart's rotten too. In every film I watch, I'm on the side of the bad guy, so turn around and show me that I'm better. The next song on my list is I Like You Slash A Happier Song, which features Doja Cat. Now this is a catchy pop song perfect for the summer. It blends Doja's 80s inspired pop sound with Post's trap influence sound that we've heard him from him since the beginning. They have good chemistry on this song and I wouldn't mind hearing them work together again, which I didn't think that would be the case. To me, it's, it seemed like a, a random collaboration, but it works. What makes Doja so good is her ear for melodies and how witty she is with how she puts words together. I guarantee she always has the more memorable lines when she's featured on songs, and I Like You is no different. It's also part of the reason why, even though I don't care for Doja, I gotta admit I'm a fan of her work and her talent, because it's just, you, you can be a hater, but some things you just can't deny, and that's, you know, kind of how I found myself into Doja Cat's music. It is what it is. The next song on my list is Insane. This song takes me back to the sound of Beer Bongs and Bentley, where he was heavily influenced by Trap, using the trap drums anywhere he could. Now, Insane may stick out like a sore thumb for this reason, but it's still a dope track. I love Post's melodies as well as his inflection on the hook. The song will easily get stuck in your head. The beat is also hard as fuck. I love it. My favorite lines are, quote, Take your bitch, give her back, insane. Sent her packing, she was acting crazy. Going batshit in the backseat range. She was classy, now she nasty. Hey, and also that little rhyme scheme there too, fire. The last song on my list is When I'm Alone. What sticks out to me the most are the drums. They really drive the song. 
When I'm Alone also distinctly reminds me of a song off of a movie soundtrack from like the 2000s, or maybe it could have even belonged on in the first Twilight movie. I absolutely love it, and it's another good moment for him vocally. My favorite lines are, quote, Life is sour, even when I'm in the limelight now. To wrap up my thoughts on this album, 12 Carat Toothache serves as Post Malone's filler album. And every artist has one, and typically it's the fourth album when it happens, and it's no different here. Hopefully on his next album, he doesn't play it safe. Oh yeah, and I forgot to give um, that album rating. I'm going to start doing album ratings because now I do them when I do my posts. So the album rating I give this album is 2 out of 5 stars. And the album I give, uh, the rating I give for Aaron Ray's album is 5 out of 5. But please be sure to let me know your own personal thoughts on each album, whether you agreed with me or you thought I was completely off base with my reviews on each album. I'm always happy to hear thoughts other than my own. So before we get to the end of the episode, I want to get into the song of the week, and the song of the week is Bad Idea by Aaron Ray featuring Blast. And I already went into why I love that song so much in my review of the album, so definitely check out the song if you haven't heard it yet. It's really, really good. It's worth your time. So we have reached the end of the episode, and I want to thank you guys so much for listening to me rant and ramble for over an hour. I made sure to give you guys a long episode this week to make up for being missing in action last week. Now, if you really enjoyed this episode and you want to keep up with this podcast further, then please head over to my website, www.listentomespeak.com. There are links to all of my social media. I am on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I even have a YouTube page. And if you really like what you heard in this episode, then please consider giving Listen to Me Speak a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you rate your podcasts. And if you want to support this podcast further, then please consider donating to my listeners' donations, which can be found on my website, which is again, www.listentomespeak.com or on my Anchor page. I appreciate all of the support. And like I say every week, be kind to yourselves and thank you for listening to me speak.